This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. going to be talking a little bit doctrinally and theologically today as we begin exploring a little deeper what the whole point of church is from a biblical standpoint and how the Holy Spirit interacts with all that. I know that um, when we think of the Trinity, we think of God the Father who is untouchable, just can't even look at Him and you'll die. We think of Jesus who is very approachable, and then we think of the Holy Spirit who we really don't want to touch. Really, we don't have much to do with because it's, he's frightening. He's hard to put in a box. He's, he's hard to kind of understand. Last week, we basically talked a little bit about church and what God's expectations of church was regarding the Holy Spirit. We asked questions such as, what does it mean to worship Him in spirit and truth? Because those are the type of worshipers, it says in John, that the Father seeks to be his worshipers. We talked about what it means to receive power, like it talked about in Acts chapter 1, and they received in Acts chapter 2. You will receive deutimos, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If the Holy Spirit has already come upon us because of our salvation in him, where is that power? Is it only for them, or is it dormant, or is, it, is God deficient? Is he playing favorites? Is he... Does he blessing those old guys more than he's blessing us today? Or possibly could the problem be with us? We talked about what it means to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? I know how to pray in the flesh, don't you? Got that. My desires, my wants, saying words that sound good to you rather than to him. I got that. But what does it mean to pray in the Spirit or to have the Holy Spirit assist us when we do pray to Him? Do these words even apply to us? John 14, 12, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, and I assume we would all agree that we do, the works that I do he will also do. And then he adds the caveat, and greater works than these he will do. Why? Because I'm going to my Father. And what happened when Jesus ascended to his Father? He sent us himself. He sent us another helper, another comforter, another paraclete, just like him. He sent us the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has ascended to his Father. He has sent us what he promised us after he ascended to his Father. And how are we doing with the greater works than Jesus did? Or how are we doing with just the works that Jesus did? Or this passage we talked about last week, which I believe is the default position of the church. This is the way God designed us to be. And this is doxology Paul has in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do what? I can't even formulate the words in my mind. If you'll study the Greek and try to translate it into English, there's these superlatives that just roll one on top of another. It's hard to even describe. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or even think in our mind. He's greater and, and wants to bless us more than we can even conceive in our, in our thought life. How? How is he willing to do that? How is he able to do that according to the power that works in us? Well, what power is that? Self-determination, my will, my theological training, my memorization or understanding of scriptures, the years that I attended. You know, the power that, that works in us is the Holy Spirit, this promise of the Father. To Him be glory in the, re the recipients of that Holy Spirit in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations, including ours, forever and ever. Amen. We talked about Acts being the prototype of the church, and I shared with you that 
The entire New Testament really talks about the origin and the growth of the Christian movement and then how to deal with the Christian movement once it's grown. The Gospels and the Acts make up 50%, 6% of the New Testament. We have the epistles talk about how to nurture those existing Christians, how we're supposed to handle church and what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And then, of course, 6% just makes up the Revelation. I mean, the, the focus of the New Testament is evangelism. It's building his church. His last command to all of, all of us is that you will go out and make disciples of all nations. And the acts of the apostles show us how that's to be done. It's all about church growth. Look what Jesus said here. This is after, of course, he asked the disciples who they thought he was. Who do the people say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets of old. Okay, well, who do you say that I am? And for the first time ever, they crystallized in their mind and verbalized what they really believed about him. Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Simon, but my Father in heaven believed that to you. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Not upon you as a person, but on the affirmation of your faith. Christ says, I will build my church. And it's going to be so powerful and so strong that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, overcome it, or basically be strong to the other person's detriment. Won't happen because Christ is the one building his church. Where does he do that? He does that in the book of Acts. He talks about the church, then he ascends up to heaven, he drops down the Holy Spirit to abide with us forever, and then we have the fulfillment of this all through the book of Acts. And as I shared with you last week, one of the, and I know I went through it really quick, and I'm not going to do that today, even if we don't complete all my slides, we will deal with the rest of the slides next week. But one of the things that was so powerful was the fact that we see in the book of Acts this incredible church growth, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And the reason why it happens is because God is moving through with the, the Holy Spirit through the gifts he's given his church. I mean, just look at the growth here. The original nucleus of the church was 120 people. You see that in Acts 1.15. Day of Pentecost, after this sermon, it takes about six minutes to preach if you do it with inflection and kind of slow and pause for theatrical effect. We've now gone to 3,000 people. Then all of a sudden we find out at the, uh, Acts chapter 2 that now the church has come together and people are being added to that 3,000 daily that are being saved in Jerusalem in a hostile Jewish area. The fact is that they're coming out of Judaism. There's no Gentiles getting saved here. Gospel has not gone to Samaritans. These are Jews getting saved in Jerusalem. Now they're being added to the church daily. Two chapters later it says the church now has 5,000 men not counting women and children. The number may actually be, if you assume men have wives and kids, I mean, this could be 15,000, 20,000 people by chapter 4. Then all of a sudden, by chapter 5, it doesn't even talk about the numbers. The numbers are so great, it just says multitudes were being saved. By the time we get to Acts chapter 6, we don't even use, the Holy Spirit doesn't use the phrase anymore. They were added to the church. They just talked about the number of the people were being multiplied and multiplied. It's, it's growing exponentially now. Acts chapter 6, a few verses later, Jewish religious leaders are getting converted. I mean, how does that happen? Then, of course, two chapters later, the gospel then moves, according to the Great Commission, to the Samaritans, and they begin coming to Christ. An Ethiopian eunuch was saved. Then entire towns by Acts chapter 9 are committed to Christ. The Gentiles become Christians in Acts chapter 11. A Roman now, proconsul believes in Acts chapter 13. Large multitudes of Jews and Greeks accepted the faith in Acts chapter 14. Churches increased in number daily, it says, in Acts chapter 16. Prominent women followed Jesus in Acts chapter 17, a ruler of a synagogue. Who would think that guy would get saved? And his whole household comes to faith in Acts chapter 18. Word of the Lord grows mightily and prevails in Acts chapter 19. And on and on and on. Isn't that amazing? 
The whole book of Acts is a picture of the church just moving out and growing exponentially. Why? Because of the gospel message? Yes. Because of the faithfulness of the, of the early church? Yes. But there's something intrinsically tied to that. What drew these people to the faith was the manifestations of the spiritual gifts that you and I have been talking about for months now, active and manifesting in the very church itself. Consider this. The 3,000 people who got saved on Pentecost were attracted by what? The gift of tongues where all of a sudden they heard the gospel message preached in their own language. The process of leading 5,000 people to Christ began with Peter and John healed this guy that was lame at the temple gate. Do you remember? And he's standing up and he's rejoicing, and the Jews couldn't contend with that because a miracle had taken place in their life. Believers were added when Peter's shadow healed some, and demons were cast out in Acts chapter 5. By the time we get to Acts chapter 8, the gospel broke through to Samaritans because Philip was doing miracles, exercising spiritual gifts among them, and they're going, wow, this is not just religion. Something powerful is happening here. In Joppa, people believed because Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. If somebody was raised from the dead in your midst and you weren't a believer, don't you think it would get your attention? They're doing the things that Christ was doing. The proconsul believed because Paul had power over this satanic plant and made the guy blind. The word of the Lord spread through Ephesus when demons were cast out through handkerchiefs that were blessed by Paul. Over and over again, as you look in this Acts of the Apostles, we kind of study it academically, but you'll see that the reason why that this incredible growth was the fact that Spiritual gifts were being manifest by the church that drew people to Christ. Which leads me to a couple questions. I always have a couple questions, don't you? A couple questions. Number one, who are these guys? I mean, who are they? Are they, are they specially gifted? Are they anointed? Are they different than you and I? Are they special in, in some sort of academic way? Do they have PhDs in missionology and you and I don't? Are they, are they more blessed than we? I mean, who are these guys? And so I went back and I did a little review of who these apostles were and people that were following Jesus, and they were handpicked by Jesus, every one of them. Were you? Did he choose you in him before the foundation of the world? So the very nature that these guys had, they were selected by Christ. So are you and I, selected by him. He slowly revealed to him the scope of what his church was going to be about. I mean, it wasn't until they made their affirmation in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus began to tell them about the church. And it says in a few verses later that at that point, beginning there, he began to tell them about how he has to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die and be raised on the third day. There was a progressive revelation of who he was. He never laid on them more than they can handle. He waited till they matured and understand point A before he moved on to point B. Has he not done that with you? Weren't there things when you first got saved, just the Bible says it and I believe it and that settles it and Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, and your faith was no deeper than that. And then all of a sudden he begins opening up scripture to you and the more that you trust and the more that you believe, the more he shows. True? They were active participants in what Jesus was doing in building his church. He didn't say, you guys sit and watch he had them actively involved. As a matter of fact, the only time I can remember Jesus telling them to sit and not do anything is when he went in to clear out the temple because he knew that he was going to bring upon himself the power of the state to crush him for that act, and he wanted to protect his disciples from that. But every other time he performed a miracle, they were involved in that. Hey, we're going to feed a bunch of people. What have we got? Philip, hey, here's a lunch. Well, okay, well, let's take this and I'll bless it. You guys spread it out. You guys get involved. He was showing them firsthand the fulfillment of John 14, the works that I do, I want you to do, but you're not going to be able to do them by just sitting. You have to learn by actually getting involved. What they saw Jesus do, he made them do. I mean, it was like on-the-job training. All right, guys, I've spoken to you. I've... Uh, taught you. You've seen me do these things. Here's what we're going to do. Time for you to climb out from under your mother's wing. 
So I'm going to send you out two by two. You're going to go into all these areas by yourself. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you to do the things that I do. I want you to rely totally on faith. Don't take money. Don't take an extra tunic. Don't even take a bag for your possessions. I will provide for you. Go out and do what I'm doing. Don't you think that was a little bit frightening? Especially if you were paired up with Judas or Thomas. Maybe he put Thomas and Judas together. I mean, that'd be kind of scary, wouldn't it? But that's what he did. I want you to do what I do. And when they came back, they marveled not that the dead were raised and that lives or the dead were raised or that lame people could walk, but they rejoiced that even the demons were subject to us in the name of Christ. This is the church. He told them not to act on their own, which men are so impulsive of doing, which I am so impulsive of doing, but to wait until he powers them from on high. I'm going to be raised from the dead. Guys, don't do nothing. Don't make a decision. Don't call a meeting. Don't go out evangelizing. Don't pass out tracts. Don't do anything in the flesh until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when that happens, you'll be empowered by me. And then he modeled for them, and this is a a key theological point you have to understand today. He modeled for them in his own life what they soon would become. He's the master teacher. Follow the teacher. What happens to me, what I do, is the same things I want you to do. Which raises another question. If these are the guys that God chose to turn the world upside down, what can I learn from them? And I want to learn from not only their successes, but I also want to learn from their mistakes. What can I learn from them? So we're going to be looking at the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at it primarily as not the acts of the apostles, but as the acts of the Holy Spirit moving through the apostles, trying to glean some truth to figure out exactly what they did and what they didn't do to make them the men that they were. So let's just look at First couple verses here in Acts chapter 1. It says, A former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. I want to just break the verse down. It talks about for the former account, that's the word logos. It means the spoken word, something communicated. The former account that I, Luke, made, and we know what that is. That's the gospel of Luke. And again, nobody knows uh, the purpose of that. Chuck Missler is one of the people who believe that they may have been trial documents that Luke put together in order to uh, help Paul in his defense in Rome. That may or may not be true. But the fact is that we have in the book of Luke, we have all the stuff that Jesus said in the book of Acts. We've got all the things that he did uh, and, and moved through his, his disciples. And he's wrote this to a man named Theopolis. And again, we have no idea who Theopolis is. You can do some study on that. There's a lot of presuppositions, but there are these letters, this orderly account that Luke made examining all the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ, beginning with his birth, all the way through the, basically Paul going to Rome and the, um, at the end of the, the apostolic church age. And it says, the former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Wow, conviction hits right there. We in the church are really big on teaching, not so big on doing. I, uh, I heard this many, many years ago about the, the Gentile way of viewing Scripture, the mindset that we have, and we've all been raised in it, versus the Jewish way of viewing Scripture. We have a tendency of thinking things through. I think, therefore I am, and, and analyzing things, the, the awakening and the enlightenment and all that kind of stuff. We've all been raised in that, that mindset. That, for example, when we go to a mission conference, a mission conference is designed to teach us things about missionaries. Oh, wow, here's our missionaries, and look at the artifacts that they brought, and look at all the stuff that they're doing. Wow, that's great. And we go through a seven-day mission conference, and we go home feeling we've done missions. Like somehow we've accomplished something by sitting in a chair and learning all about missions. That's the way Gentiles kind of think. 
Jews, on the other hand, think differently. When Jesus says go, you know what he means? Go. You go to a mission conference to become a missionary. You learn what's going on. How do I do that? How do I volunteer? That's what happened in the Philadelphia church age and the great missionary movements of the late 1700s and 1800s where people, just common people like you and I, would, would go to a mission conference and God would speak to their heart and says, I want you to go to China and I want you to go to India and I want you to sell your possessions and, and go do something to, to honor me because the scripture says go into all the world and that's not something we learn about world that's the word cosmos i'll look that up in my strongest concordance and wow i have a better understanding of the word world rather than actually going into the world we've all been raised that way churches become like little teaching learning centers, but the people who learn the most, we have a tendency of never going out. We just teach other people to be pretty much as apathetic as we are. That's not what Jesus did. Everything that Jesus began to do first and then teach, I'm doing. Well, why are you doing that, Jesus? Let me teach you why. Lord, I'm praying. God, will you teach us how to pray? Sure, I'll teach you how to do something I'm already doing. And the book of Acts was a doing church. I mean, once they got saved, they took it seriously that everything else didn't matter, that their family and friends now were members of the very church. Many of them never even went back home. If they went back home, they carried this gospel with them, and it cost them their job and their family. And many people that believe that's exactly what happened to Paul. In order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have been married. He may have even had children. But once he got saved in the church, sent him back home to Tarsus for seven years, they rejected him. He lost his family and everything, which may have led to Paul saying, you know, it's really better for those sold out to the gospel to be like I am, because you don't have to carry the hurt and the pain that, that comes from that. I've known many people that have been called into the ministry, but an unwilling wife I don't want to be a pastor's wife, destroys that ministry. I mean, we don't know. But the fact is it was a doing church and not, a, not just a teaching church. The former account I made of Theopolis of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, when? Until the day in which he was taken up, watch this, after he, Christ, how? Through the Holy Spirit, why would Christ have to do something through another member of the Godhead. Through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles, and so you don't get confused. The word apostles just don't mean the 12. When it talks about the 12, it usually says the 12, because Barnabas was called an apostle, Timothy was called an apostle, and the word literally means one who sent, a messenger, a delegate, an ambassador, that, that the Holy Spirit... Uh, through the Holy Spirit, he gave commandments to those people that he had as ambassadors, those people that were there, those people whom he had chosen. And he told them to do something. Now, here's the, here's the theology part of this. In the early church, what the, the heresy that they struggled with the most was the concept of the Trinity, which you and I all have got figured out, Right? I mean, how did that work? How can you have three in one? How can they be separate entities yet one? Separate personalities. I mean, how, how do they coordinate with each other? And worse than that, how does Jesus fit in? Jesus the God-man, Jesus the, the one that we understand. I mean, what was his nature? And, and there was heresies that went around, and they would have church council after church council after church council trying to deal with those issues. They came out with the Nicene Creed in the 3rd century, and they had to go back and resolve some of these issues in the 4th century at the Council of Chalcedon. I mean, it was, it was really confusing to them because they couldn't understand the nature of Christ. I mean, if Christ is God, which the Bible teaches he is, true, it also teaches that he is totally man. He's not part man and part God. That's a heresy. He's not some sort of hybrid nature where you can take part of, part of Jesus and part of God and put it together and kind of create something brand new because then he wouldn't be our perfect sacrifice. He wouldn't have been tested in every way that you and I are tested. I mean, in order for Jesus to be the one that we have to follow, he has to be tempted just like we are. It's what Hebrews says. True? So was Jesus, is Jesus tempted with lust? I don't even want to go there. That's blasphemous. Are you tempted with lust? So is he. 
Otherwise, he can't be the perfect sacrifice. He can't be someone who is tempted in every way, just like you, yet without sin. Did Jesus struggle from insecurity or peer pressure? Did he want to be accepted and loved by his friends? Do you? Yes, so did he. The difference was he was unwilling to compromise who he was to win their approval. I mean, if you, if you understand that nature of Christ, he has to be a human in every aspect, just like you and just like me, only without sin. Well, how can that happen if he's God? Did he quit being God? Did he come on earth and become a man and not God at all? Well, no. That's a heresy that they had to deal with in the first three or four centuries. God, Jesus never became less than what he was. He's always the son of God. He will always be the son of God. Well, what did he do? Well, Paul kind of cleared that up for us a little bit in Philippians, where it talks about that he humbled himself. He literally voluntarily set aside and chose not to use the God part of his nature being totally God so that he could experience humanity just like you and I. Make sense? Because if it doesn't, then there's a lot of verses in Scripture that make no sense at all, like the one we just looked at. Why would God, Jesus, have to use the Holy Spirit as an instrument to give commands to his disciples when he was still in the flesh when he gave those commands? That makes no sense at all. Acts chapter 10 makes even less sense. It says, the word of God, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, this is Peter talking, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, and Peter affirms he is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. We're not going to deny that. The word that you know, how? How do you know this word? Well, because it was proclaimed through all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism of John, which he preached. Then what's the message, Peter? Watch how the Father, God the Father, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Wait a second. How can God the Father give to Christ a co-equal with God the Father, his Son, another part co-equal of the Trinity? I mean, how can that be? It almost puts Jesus as a subservient kind of position where you have God the Father who has a possession called the Holy Spirit and you got poor Jesus over here with nothing. And so God the Father is going to bless or anoint or take care of Jesus by giving him a possession of his, the Holy Spirit. And as part of that possession, he has power. He has dudamas. And what did he do with that? Well, he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Why? For God the Father was with him. That's confusing, isn't it? I mean, how can that possibly be? I understand that if Jesus and God were separated and his nature was, was not of God at all on the earth, but just as a man, but the scripture teaches that's not true. He was all God and all man at all times. But what Jesus did is he voluntarily chose to set aside and not use the privileges and rights and honors that come with being God so that you and I can experience every, or he can experience everything you and I experience in the flesh. So he's just like us, right? Where does your power come from? Who moves in your life? Who changes you? What are you anointed with? The same thing Christ was anointed with, the Holy Spirit. The things that Christ did, he did because the Holy Spirit came upon him. You'll never find Jesus in the gospel accounts doing a miracle and taking credit for that because of his nature. He never says, look what I'm doing on my own authority. No, he does it on the authority of the Father because he's living and modeling in life as truly a man just like you and I are. If I want to do the things that Christ did, then I need the things that Christ had. And what did he have? A sinless life, which is kind of difficult, and a, a life committed to the Father. But he had a blessing that was given to him, the Holy Spirit, and he was able to go about doing good and healing all who are oppressed, for God was with him. We have a, 
We have 30 years and Christ didn't do anything. We have no accounts of any miracles. We don't have any great teachings. We have nothing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, John the Baptist shows up, preached for six months, talks about the coming of the Messiah. Then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. Holy Spirit speaks to John and says, the one that you see coming that, the, that I will light upon, that's the Messiah. He recognizes who he is. When Jesus comes up to John, John recognizes who he is and says, wait, wait, wait a second, I, I don't need to baptize you you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, let's, let's do this according to righteousness, according to the plan. And so he's baptized just like everybody else. And when he raises up, what happens? Do you remember? The Holy Spirit comes upon him, lands upon him, a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And from that point on, Jesus does everything that we know him to do. Same Holy Spirit who rested on Jesus, the man, modeling for us and his disciples what life is supposed to be like as a Christian is the same Holy Spirit that resides in you. But because of our unbelief or our lack of training or our fear, we just kind of limp along and ignore these verses that talk about what Christ wants us to do with our life. Make sense? Okay. Continuing here. The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, and then he explains who those apostles are, to whom, the same group of people, the sent one, the messengers, uh, an ambassador, he presented, or to place or stand behind or, or close, he presented himself, Christ's actions, alive. I have now died, and I am presenting myself to these very men alive, and I'm doing it after I suffered by many infallible proofs. I am going to reveal to you in ways that you cannot deny that I've actually been raised from the dead. Well, what are those proofs? Well, he ate a meal with some of them. He uh, walked through a wall with some of them. He was uh, on the road to Emmaus and was there and kind of disappeared. He, there's a lot of things that he did and some things that maybe aren't even included in Scripture. But Luke wanted us to know that the most infallible proof was the fact that he was seen, not just by a handful of people, but seen by a multitude of people. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, my question, such as, as being seen by them, this, this group of people, this sent ones, during 40 days. And during the 40 days, what was Christ doing? The same thing he always does. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. He began and ended his ministry doing exactly the same thing. I began my ministry talking about the kingdom of God, talking about the kingdom of heaven. I ended my ministry talking during these 40 days about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, the very kingdom that you and I exist in. He begins his ministry. First words we have in his public preaching. For that time, Jesus began to preach and says, repent so you can go to heaven. No. Repent, so God will be pleased. No, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Very next chapter, he begins the beatitude, the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. He ends the beatitude with the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. And here it talks about in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that during those 40 days, he continually talked to them about the very stuff you and I never even hear about. What is life like in the kingdom? Not in the church that we kind of make for our benefit, but what is life like in the kingdom of God where the spiritual gifts manifest, where, where Christ gives you authority to, to resist Satan and he will have to flee that we can take every thought captive through the obedience of him by laying ourselves down as a living sacrifice. No matter what you've done in your life, it's holy and acceptable unto God. I mean, that's just wonderful, isn't it? Just a few more verses. And he, Jesus, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Guys, don't go off half-cocked. 
Don't go off doing the things that you want to do. You need to stay. For how long? I'm not telling you. Just stay. Not going to be long, but just stay. For what? You'll know. It's the promise of the Father. I don't know what that is. I know you don't, but when you receive it, you'll know exactly what that is. And he, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. To wait. For what? The promise of the Father. Oh, yeah, I remember you talking about that earlier, Jesus. But he was, I don't, know, I don't know what the promise of the Father is. What does that look like? Is it a power to sing? Is it a power to preach? Is, is it organizational power so we can create a church in the image of just secular world? I mean, what does it mean? Which, Jesus said, you've heard from me when I told you about it. For John truly baptized with water. He immersed. We were overwhelmed. We were submerged. We were consumed standing in a pool, and they take the, the person and they dip them underwater. They're consumed by the water, submerged by the water. John baptized you with water, but you shall in the future be same word baptized, immersed, overwhelmed, submerged, literally consumed with the Holy Spirit, like I have been, he says, not many days from now. What happened to me will happen to you. And once it happens to you, the things that I do, you'll be able to do because I'll go to the Father. There's only a couple times in Scripture that we see more of the Godhead than just one person at a time. Occasionally in the Old Testament, we hear God the Father speaking, and we have a Christophany where there's an angel there, and many people believe that's actually Jesus. And when he talked to Joshua at the Battle of Jericho, when he talked to Abraham before they went down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and a, a couple times at the Transfiguration, we've, we've got all three there. At, um, at his baptism, we've got the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and God speaking from uh, heaven and Jesus in the flesh. Most of the time, in Scripture, he deals as part of the Godhead with us individually. It's just Jesus, or it's just the Holy Spirit, or in the Old Testament, a lot of times it was just God the Father. Here he says, when I go, when I'm ascended, when I'm taken up into heaven, I will send you something else. I will be gone, but I will not leave you as orphans, John 14. I will send you another comforter, another helper, just like me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. What is Jesus like? The Father. What's the Father like? Pretty much Jesus. And I will send you another, Alos, um, helper that's just like me. What is the Holy Spirit like? He's like Jesus. What is Jesus like? He's like the Father. It's, it's, it's one God. Makes sense? Just laid out for us. It's this promise of the Father. I will send you, he says, the promise of the Father. Well, what, what exactly is that? Luke 24, look what he says here. Same writer. Behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you. I'm going to send you something that my Father has promised. But I want you, before you, to tarry. And the word tarry means to sit down or settle down, do nothing. I want you just to sit and do nothing. I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes. And what is that promise of the Father? You are endued with power from on high. Endued means to literally sink into or to be clothed. It's, the imagery is like taking a baby and you've got this bed and it's full of all these sheets and this fluffy stuff and all that. I know you did that, done that with your kids. And you, you take your baby and you just kind of throw them gently, of course, throw them in the middle of all these clothes, and they just, they just hit it and sink down like a trampoline, so the clothes kind of overwhelm them. That's what it's talking about here. You will sink in, you'll be overwhelmed, you'll be clothed, you'll go in and go under with power, with dudamas from on high. What kind of power? The power we see in the book of Acts, the power we see manifested in the church, the power that you and I possess, yet for some reason, never seem to have manifested. Never. This is the promise of the Father. Acts 2 talks about it too. Peter's saying, this Jesus God has raised up and we are all witnesses. Got that. Jesus you raised up, we're all witnesses as he's preaching to the Jews. Therefore, Christ now being exalted to the right hand of God. Exactly. Jesus was raised up. He's at the right hand of God ever doing intercession for us right now. And having received, this is Christ now, having received 
from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that promise of the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. His disciples started proclaiming the gospel with the gift of tongues, the biblical gift of tongues in their own language. The crowd gathered around. Peter preaches a very convicting, non-politically correct, non-seeker-sensitive message where he just hammers them with the truth of the gospel. And he says, look, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He received from the Father the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, which He is now manifesting through us to you. What you see and hear that drew you to the gospel message is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit given by God to Christ as our model, as our type, as our prototype, the same way He will give the Holy Spirit or has given the Holy Spirit to each of us. If we're just willing to believe and trust and watch Him move in our lives. What Christ promised, He first received. Two more of these. Acts chapter 6. Therefore, this is just like you and me, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, show us how to receive the Holy Spirit. How can we do greater gifts than you do? Lord, show us how to pray and how to minister and, and how to live in your kingdom. Father, show us how. No, I didn't say any of that kind of stuff. Because they're thinking earthbound like we are. Lord, will at this time you restore the kingdom to Israel? Really? This is one of the times that I can almost imagine the Lord saying that. Really? What, really? And all we've talked about, everything that we've done, I'm getting ready to ascend to heaven, and all you're thinking about is giving, getting the Roman yoke off your neck and giving you the freedom on earth that you think you're interested in? Just like us, they were thinking about a political, earthly, physical kingdom. God, are you going to heal my illness? God, are you going to give me the raise? God, are you going to help me pay my mortgage off? God, can I have a really good vacation? God, can you restore this kind of relationship? And Christ's atonement didn't do any of that. None of that. Remember? He died on the cross. He had one tunic. He had one, one robe that was, was torn. I mean, Jesus didn't have a whole lot of money like we have. Lord, is it, uh, is it proper to pay the poll tax to Caesar? I, I, you know what? Somebody uh, give me a coin. But well, you don't have one? No, I don't. Give me okay. Here's the denarius. Whose image is that? Well, it's Caesar. They render under Caesar what is Caesar's, and under God what is God. You can have that back now. Hey, does your master not pay uh, pay the tax? Well, sure he does. Peter, listen. Go on out there. Throw the hook in the water. When a fish comes out, reach in his mouth. You'll find enough money for my tax and your tax. Why don't you just take it out of your savings account? Your four hundred one k. You didn't have one. Have all the things we think come with Christ don't. Like us, the disciples were thinking of an earthly political kingdom. After three years with Jesus, they still had no clue what his kingdom was about. And they didn't understand that until the Holy Spirit came and changed everything. I mean, in Acts chapter 1, you're going to find without the Holy Spirit, after they've been told to do nothing, Peter's going to stand up and go, hey guys, you know, we need to fix this. You know, I've looked at these passages of Scripture, and obviously, you know, this has to be fulfilled, and I'm not waiting on Christ to fulfill it, maybe through Paul. Instead, I'm going to fulfill it myself, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw some lots. We're going to choose somebody that's going to be part of the 12, and so they chose a guy that we never, ever, ever heard of again. Isn't that amazing? There's a whole story behind that, but we'll deal with that later. Seven and eight, and we'll quit, almost. He said to them, this is a rebuke here. It's not for you to know, and this is 1097, this is Gnosko. It's not for you to know intimately and experientially the times or the seasons which the Father has placed on his own authority. That is none of your business. Times is chronos, and it's where we get chronology, and it means like a duration of time, the passing of moments in sequence from eternity past to eternity forward. But... Um, but seasons is a different word, and it means a period of opportunity. So it's not for you and I to know the times, the chronology, the events of the calendar that's going to take place, or the opportunity, the times of that when God is going to come, which he himself has placed by his own authority. None of your business. But you shall receive, and the word received here is to, to get what is given or imparted, power. You shall receive, here it is again, you shall receive dudamas, explosive 
miracle-working, achieving, life-changing power. When will that happen? I've been telling you. I've been telling you. It's the promise of the Father. It will happen when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Well, how will that power be manifest? You will be witnesses, future tense. You'll be one that has information. You'll be one that can confirm something. You'll have a truth that nobody can deny. You'll be witnesses for me where you're at right now in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria into the uttermost parts of the earth. It's like expanding out in concentric circles. This is what will happen to you when, um, when you receive that power, the Holy Spirit coming upon you. By the way, has any of that changed? Was that just for them? I mean, do you not receive the power? Do we not receive the power? Or is that just power that they have? Or if we somehow determined that we don't want that kind of power because if we have that kind of power, it brings about an incredible responsibility where maybe God wants us to go to our jobs and not only be just a good employee and get a raise in a corner office and our name on the door and a company car, but maybe he wants to go to our job and he wants to view us at our job as missionaries, as missionaries, that I'm going here because God has provided this job for me and I'm going to serve my, my employer to the best of my ability, but I'm here to proclaim the goodness of Christ. Well, if I do that, I'll lose my job, baby. But in our society, we reversed all that and holding on to the job and what comes from that is far more important than the power that he places within us. Power to change lives. I mean, does, does it still apply today? And if so, corporately, how do you think the church is doing? Honestly, it's a joke. It's a joke. We make no impact at all on our culture. Man, we have a hard time making an impact in our own families. Talked about this last week. Our kids are all about Jesus till they turn about 16. Then all of a sudden they want to be all about the world. And where's the holding power of Christ? It's not Christ. It's not him that's failed. It's you and I manifesting that Jesus Christ is all in all in everything. Well, he's only all in all if he does the things we want him to do. But when I want a relationship more than I want Christ, what do I do? Do I get rid of the relationship or do I ignore Christ? We ignore Christ over and over and over again. The Lord asked me, Steve, it's a rhetorical question. It's really simple. Have you received the power that Jesus promised? Well, what do you ask? Do you have the Holy Spirit? And if you have the Holy Spirit, then you receive that power. Have you received that power? I guess I have. All right, well, if I, if I guess that I have, then how is that power being manifest in your life? That's a probing question, isn't it? I mean, what is God doing in our life? to show the world, our own family, and our lost friends and neighbors, and even other Christians, that Christ is truly real in us. What is he doing? What are we allowing him to do? Do we see that kind of power in a church today? And if not, you ever wonder why? It's either his fault or our fault. I don't think it's his fault. I think maybe if there's something deficient here, it probably rests with me and with you. 9 through 11, we have Jesus ascending into heaven. Now when he had spoken these things, while he watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you, so shall come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Got that. But then my question is, how many people were there with him? I mean, he's getting ready to ascend up into heaven. I mean, what, what was that scene like? Was there like 12? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it could have been 12. I mean, you know, Judas wasn't with him. Maybe it was just 12. Maybe they, you know, had the other guy that was going to replace Judas in a couple of days. Maybe there was 12. No, it's probably more than that because you had Mary and you had the, the other people that were there and you had you know, some of the friends and neighbors and stuff. I don't know. Maybe there's like 25. You know, it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, that in that upper room, there was actually 120 people there. So maybe it was 120. Maybe 120 people were on the hillside. They watched Jesus ascend into heaven. And maybe the same 120 waited and prayed for 10 days. I mean, maybe it's 120. Maybe, maybe it's 500. Maybe it's a huge number. And if it's a huge number, 
How come there's only 120 that are waiting in the room? I mean, maybe there's more. I mean, the scripture doesn't say. I mean, I mean, how many people were there? But we do have a clue. And we find this clue in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about his position as an apostle. And he's basically saying, I am an apostle. I am the one chosen by Christ. I have seen the Lord. And he kind of describes that by going on talking about the people that Jesus revealed himself to during that 40 days between his his resurrection and his ascension. And here's what he said. For I delivered to you, first of all, that I also received the gospel message, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scripture, and that he was seen by Cephas, which is Peter, then by the twelve, okay, then he was seen by over 500 people at one time. At one gathering, over 500 people saw him, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have already died. Over 500 people. There's no indication anywhere in the scriptures that this event happened in any other place than what we're talking about here. During those 40 days, I mean, it's possible Jesus may have met with a mass of people on a hillside you know, during those 40 days, but it seems strange that the Holy Spirit didn't want us to know about that. But the Holy Spirit did want us to know about an opportunity where Jesus was with 500 people. And the assumption is, it's probably right here. And if that's true, and again, can't be dogmatic about that, but if that's true, what happened to the other 380 of them? And what happened to them? 500 people on the hillside, angels come out, Jesus is lifted off the ground. We watch him go into a sky like a balloon that you let go so you can't see it anymore. These angels speak to us and say, why are you looking up at heaven? This same Jesus will return in like manner. We wrap our arms about each other, marveling at how incredible Christ is. Let's obey what he says. Let's tarry. Let's stay together and pray. But 380 people decided they had other things to do. Or maybe it started out with 500 in the upper room and everybody else got tired. Man, I've been here three hours. I mean, come on. Church doesn't last this long. I got, I mean, I'm going to a movie tonight. I got work tomorrow. I got things I got to do. Yeah, look, look, I took three vacation days for this and I don't have any more because I won't be able to go to Myrtle Beach. So what, what's going on here? This obviously is not happening. And it wasn't until there were 10 days had left, and the scripture says there were 120 that were there. We don't know if it began with 120 or ended with 120. But I see a disconnect here, don't you? I see kind of like church like I would go to. I mean, if really, honestly, Jesus manifested himself in the middle of the parking lot. Two angels came out and spoke to us and said we're supposed to stay right here until he tells us what to do. I don't really think we all would. I don't. I, I, I got a dog to take care of. I mean, somebody got my dog out. Okay, so that's more important than obeying Christ. Well, you, well that's the new carpet. You know, I got people. I thought I told somebody I'd meet them somewhere. I got something else I got to do. Really cool show. And t- I got a job. If, if I don't go to my job, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to lose my health insurance. And that's really terrible if I do that. So, I mean, how would that work out? But these people... They didn't care about none of that. I mean, they came to Jerusalem because of Pentecost. Many of these people didn't even live in Jerusalem. It's a feast day. Powerful, isn't it? Last thing, I just want to just want to touch on this, but we'll talk about it next week. Acts 1, 12 through 14, the upper room prayer meeting. When they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And then when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And a list of disciples that are there, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Okay. These all, how many? We know at least 120, not sure. But these all continued how? Oh, exactly how the church functions today. In one accord. Church has one mind, one passion, one focus. The church is of unanimous consent, right? That's why we drive down the road and see churches of every possible flavor that you can imagine. 
Baptist church, Presbyterian church, uh, uh, Episcopal church, Lutheran church, 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 and even Baptist churches don't get along, and Presbyterian churches don't get along. We have non-denominational churches. We have churches named with doctrinal statements in their name. We have churches that just call themselves, you know, Flow or the River or something of that nature. And all these different churches that never fellowship, never get together as, as, as separate little entities. It's not how they met. I mean, they put everything aside. They probably didn't even know some of these people. I mean, uh, really well. I mean, the fact of the matter is that I'm sure Peter rubbed a few people wrong, don't you? Rubs me wrong when I just read the passage. But they continued with one accord, one mind, one passion, one focus, one unanimous consent, and they continued in prayer and supplication. Prayer and supplication. Prayer, communing with God, supplication, asking for our needs. And here's the amazing passage. And they continued with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And his brothers didn't even believe in Christ. They chastised him. They, they thought he was out of his mind, remember? And all of a sudden, after the resurrection, sometime during this 40 days, maybe Jesus appeared to them too. All of a sudden now we got James and Jude and who knows who else now is part of that group. Don't you think there was some animosity between the other disciples and them? I mean, it's, it's amazing. Amazing what Christ has done. And this is the verses we'll look at next week. It talks about the church doing some of the things that um, you and I do. It's like the first fleshly act of the church. So Lord, if, if this is your prototype, if, if, if this is how you want church to be, then what are we missing? Well, you're not missing anything. Because everything I gave them, I have given you. Only, actually, we're better blessed than they are. They had no place to meet in. We have a building. You know, they, um, um, they, we had the Old and the New Testament. They only had the Old Testament, and I'm sure most of them did not have copies because books weren't invented. It was all by scrolls. They didn't have copies of the Scripture like you and I have. I mean, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have Blue Letter Bible or John MacArthur or, you know, Spurgeon books and all that. They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. They didn't have Christian music that we have. They, they didn't have none of that kind of stuff. I mean, they didn't have a, a history and a legacy. They hadn't worked through theological issues such as the nature of Christ and, and how the atonement actually was applied. And, they didn't have any of that. That, that. that came later. They didn't have savings accounts, most likely, because the people that Jesus attracted were just common laborers. I mean, look at his disciples. You and I have credit cards. We have savings accounts. We can get second mortgages or, or on our houses. I mean, the fact is, if we lost our job for a considerable amount of time, most of us could find some sort of income to be able to, to support us or, or some sort of money to take care of our, our bills, at least during a 10-day period. They didn't have food stamps. They didn't have Obamacare. I mean, they didn't have any of that kind of stuff. They didn't have transportation like we had. They didn't have none of that. They just had Christ. That's it. It was an incredible thing that happened in my life. Jesus came in and he saved me. I was lost and now I'm saved. Why? I just can't believe it. Guys, I want to hang with you. I, why would I want to go back to my job, go back home? I want to hang with you. Because God is doing incredible things. We're devoting ourselves to prayer and the apostles teaching and the breaking of bread and fellowship and people getting saved. And they took their possessions. Read the rest of Acts chapter 2. They took their possessions and they all pulled them together because it doesn't matter. All for one, one for all. It's a community. It's a family. It's the body of Christ that we talked about last week. I mean, that's the prototype. I don't know if it's even possible to, to go back to that. I mean, I don't, I don't, maybe the ship has sailed. Maybe it's, it's too far. Maybe we're too much independent contractors that, you know, we don't really trust enough each other enough to, to have that kind of family kind of relationship. I know most families don't trust each other enough. Now, I don't know. But I do know that the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in me and lives in you is what makes me complete in Him. It gives me the wisdom. 1 Corinthians uh, 1.30 Christ became for us the wisdom from God and sanctification and redemption. I mean, what I have and what you have is all we need 
to live the abundant life he promised us. And I think in order for us to ask for that, we have to at least be able to think that it's possible. We at least have to be able to believe that there's something more than we're experiencing right now. And that's the whole point of what we're doing right now is just to get you to believe if it's possible. If Steve's not preaching heresy and it's possible that maybe Jesus really meant what he says, I don't want to live in Laodicea any longer. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to embrace all of Christ with all that I am, no matter what, come what may. Amen? Let me pray.